A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And start off by saying that sometimes I, in moments of weakness or or um, nostalgia, I regress into my old uh, hobbies of uh, American history, sports history, and not just exclusively on Jewish history. And sometimes it's uh, current events that trigger it. So just the other day, had the NBA uh, star Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter crash. So I was thinking about uh, famous sports deaths. Uh, you had uh, Thurman Munson also killed in a plane crash. The captain of the New York Yankees, Roberto Clemente, and the Pirates, which was especially tragic because it was the last time the Pirates had a superstar like that. You even had someone who was killed by the game of baseball, whose a pitch was thrown at him in 1920. Ray Chapman was hit by a pitch and got a concussion and died. So actually died from the game, which was quite rare. He had that by Dale Earnhardt, uh, the beloved NASCAR race driver. Uh, he also had Reggie Lewis, who uh, collapsed on the court during practice. It was the Celtics uh, played for, for played for them. So you had some pretty um, famous sports deaths, of course, as far as Jewish history is concerned, and that's part of our uh, audio intro always, is the Munich massacre at the 1972 Olympics, where Israeli athletes were killed, unfortunately, in a very tragic uh, attack by Palestinian terrorists. So that's current events and a little bit of, of that history. Um, the recent episode we had about... Uh, FDR and the Jews is keeps on generating a massive response. Uh, it seems to be something that everyone um, either loves, hates, a combination of both, but no one's neutral. So I just want to read another letter because there's a lot of nuance here and it has to be elaborated on. And obviously I can't uh, elaborate uh, it on now, but one day we'll have to get back to this topic because it's uh, seems to be something that concerns a lot of people. So here I'm going to read just one example from the many responses I got. This is from a, a, a very impressive listener who I know personally. I actually, the first time I met him 
was in Treblinka, which sounds really weird to say, but happened to meet him. I was there with a group, and he was there too. And since then, we've been in touch. So here's the letter I received from him about the FDR episode. Hi again, another bite of a huge watermelon. You did a great job, but as always, only if this is a part one of ten. You start to talk about Rabbi Stephen Wise, but cut short of the so many letters he and his cohorts ignored from the Varat Sola, as they're published in the book Min HaMetzar by Rabbi Michal Ber Weismandl. What could FDR have done for the Jews? Oh, so many things. How about pressure England to let go of the white paper? Allow more to enter? Hey, you had enough leverage on them. I'm not such a fan of the bombing of the tracks, as this probably wouldn't have helped one Jew, but he could have allowed the deal to go through and not hold Joel Brand hostage and many more ideas if they only would have cared just a tiny bit. This FDR was an outright anti-Semite, as all around him said, and even a direct letter from him to Hitler surfaced in a book written by his secretary, which was published recently, and I don't recall the name. Um, end of letter. So that's, you know, it's expressing a lot of uh, the pain and the outrage at um, FDR, especially also Stephen Wise. And it's, it's, um, it, it needs to be addressed and elaborated on. And of course, there's a lot of nuance there. And uh, there's only a limit to how much can be covered in one episode. So perhaps sometime in the future, we'll get back to the topic and address not only the points that um, this listener raised, but also uh, other ones as well, because he's right. And, uh, in, and he's right, in other words, that it's a big topic and has to be addressed. And I don't know if I would agree with every single point. But uh, it, it is something that still needs to be um, to be brought out more. So that's that. I want to talk today about a a yard site. Um, we have a special upcoming yard site on Gimel Shvan of Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, the second oldest son of Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, and more famously, the father of Reb Yosef Dave Soloveitchik, Rav Soloveitchik of Yeshiva University and Boston. And uh, he's, so his father is in between him and Reb Chaim, and it's his yard site. I wanted to speak a little bit about him as the family roots, him and his wife also, Pesha, Pesha Feinstein Soloveitchik, um, and a little bit about them and their life. And this is the home that Rav Soloveitchik grew up in, so it's definitely a fascinating story. So we have um, Rav Moshe Soloveitchik is born to Rav Chaim Brisker in Valazhin, when Rav Chaim is still in Valazhin. In 1879, he had just recently become a, a Rebbe, assistant Rosh Hashiva to the Nitziv in Valazhin. And this Rav Moshe Soloveitchik is the second oldest child. You have Rav Yisrael Gershon Soloveitchik, who is his older brother, um, who was unfortunately killed by the Nazis during the war. And his son was another Rav Moshe Soloveitchik who escaped before the war, from the draft to Switzerland and lived there. Um, so that's that's a different Ramesha Soloveitchik, not to be confused. There was another child of Reb Chaim who was a daughter, who was married to Reb Hirsch Glickson. And the youngest son of Reb Chaim Brisker was Reb Velvola Soloveitchik, the, known as the Briskerov, um, Reb Yitzchak Zev, who later on, he was the only one who really escaped, um, right? Reb Hirsch Glickson and Reb Yisrael Gershon Soloveitchik were killed by the Nazis. Ramesha Soloveitchik, obviously, lived in America with the, when the war broke out. He was already in Urbanius Kalchanan. And the Briskerov actually escaped from war-torn Europe and got to 
Eretz Yisrael. So Rav Moshe Soloveitchik is, is one of the older ones, and he marries the daughter. He, so he comes from an aristocratic background. He comes from Reb Chaim Risker, Valazhin. He's born in Valazhin. His great-grandfather's the Nitziv. Um, into the Torah aristocracy. And then he goes ahead, and as befitting of someone of his background, he marries into another great rabbinic Lithuanian family, Reb Elia Feinstein, known as Reb Elia Prusiner, because he was the Rav in Prusian, which is actually not far from Brisk, so it was kind of like a local shidduch. And Reb Chaim obviously was already the rabbi in Brisk. And uh, we usually pass Prusian when we're on the trips, and we go to Brisk, um, we pass near Prusian, um, so it's, it's not far. And Reb Elia Feinstein was actually um, Reb Moshe Feinstein's uncle, and and they were not meaning their uncles through their he was his uncle through his mother, ironically, and the two Feinsteins were not related. What happened was there was a great rabbi named Reb Chiel Davidovich, who was a great Litvish Rav, and he had three daughters. One married Reb Elia Feinstein, who was a levy. Another one married Reb David Feinstein, who was Reb Moshe's father, who was not a levy. The two Feinsteins were not related, but they married sisters. A third daughter actually married uh, Reb Yankiv Kantorovich, was another uncle of Reb Moshe, later Rashiva Tarvidas, a rabbi in Trenton, New Jersey. And um, as far as I know, Beryl Katznelson, the great Zionist leader, one of the founders of the labor movement, was related there somehow to the Davidoviches and the Feinsteins. I forget exactly how. I tried looking it up. I didn't get a chance. Um, so that was also related to this family. So at Rebellia Prusiner, Rebellia Feinstein, it has a bunch of daughters. And one of them ends up marrying um, Reb Moshe Soloveitchik. Another one married a very important rabbi who's somewhat not well known today, Reb Menachem Krakowski, who was a Rav and a Dayan of the Vilna Bezdin, very prestigious and young and upcoming. He died quite young in the 1920s, but he was very well known at the time and a very big rabbi and Paisik and Talmud Chacham. There was another daughter married to the to Rabbi Eliezer Yitzchak Meizel, who was, the, who was in Ludge, who was the grandson of Rabbi Elichai Meizel, the rabbi of Ludge, famous Rav of Ludge, the Ludger Rav, and um, also killed by the Nazis. And um, so also all these rabbinic families are interrelated, and it's all one big ha- one big family, hopefully a happy family too. So he marries um, Pesha Feinstein. Now, interestingly enough, the daughters of, of Rebellia Prusiner were known, and they were quite famous actually, for being both intelligent. They were Feinsteins. They came from uh, this... this uh, this um, you know rabbinic type of a family. They were intelligent. They were smart, but they were also very worldly. They were well read. They were self educated. They they were you know very with it. They were considered you know somewhat connected to the new winds, or by now it wasn't actually so new, but the Haskalah type of winds. Very a lot of exposure to the outside world and people raised a few eyebrows when Reb Chaim Brisker, who was the ultra-conservative, approved of this shidduch to Rebellia Feinstein's daughters. They were very, very religious, but they were very open, what we would call it, and people were surprised. But actually, Reb Chaim Brisker, he appreciated 
the chachma of the daughter of his of his daughter-in-law because he he liked he liked uh, brilliance and he appreciated the wisdom and the insight. He would even ask her advice. He would ask Pesha advice occasionally. He had a he had a, an, um, a very nice relationship with his daughter-in-law, and um, he respected the fact that she was um, she her wisdom and her insight. Um, so the fact that they were a bit enlightened and educated didn't bother Reb Chaim um, at that point, and and uh, and they had they got married. Now, shortly after they got married, so Reb Reb, uh, Reb Meisha Soloveitchik was offered a position in the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in New York to move to America to get a position there as a Rebbe, and the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in New York eventually became the Rabbi Yitzchak Khanan Yeshiva, and eventually became Yeshiva College, which eventually became Yeshiva University. He went through several rounds until it got there. And he was offered a position there as, as, a, young, as a young guy. And the reason that he turned it down was because his father, Reb Chaim, told him, he said, if you bring your family to America, then you'll, you're going to have to give your children a secular education. And you can't have your kids have a secular education. Reb Chaim was opposed to having a secular education. So so he did not allow him to go. His father's word was law, and he wouldn't dream of doing anything that his father told him not to do. So he turned down the position. And in fact, he eventually made it to America much later, and into the same institution. It was a different Gilgal of the same institution. Um, so Pesha, who wanted to go, Pesha originally pushed Ramayisha Soloveitchik to go, and and she was a quite a dominant personality, quite uh, strong-minded. And um, someone once told me that the reason she was strong-minded is because she was a Feinstein. And you saw by Ramayisha and all the Feinsteins that they're strong-minded, it's because he thought that that uh, the two Feinsteins are related. So they are related, but not through the Feinsteins. So it can't be that it's a Feinstein characteristic, but it could be that it came from her father, and um, she was very, very dominant, very strong-minded. Today, we would use the the uh, the uh, the way of describing it is that, that she she wore the pants a little bit in the house. But in fact, Ramesha Soloveitchik held his own, and and especially since his father told him not to, and so he didn't go. But when they eventually did go later, she said she kind of like said, "I told you so," and she always regretted that they didn't go to America earlier. And um, she thought it had been a good idea. In any event, Sir Chaim felt a little bad that now his son uh, didn't have a position, so he tried to push um, the community of Rison, which had a very, very famous rabbi, or Alexander Moshe Lapidus, who was a very important literature rabbi at the time. To and then he had passed away several years earlier, and and uh, he was able to get his son after a whole situation in the community there. He was able to get his son or Moshe to become the rabbi in Rison. And then later on, he became the Ramayshi became the Rav in Cheslevich, which is much deeper into the Pale of Settlement. It's really deep into Russia, and the religious Jews in the communities in that part of White Russia, Belarus, were generally Chabad Hasidim, and that was actually most of the population of the town. Rav Solveitchik used to say how his first Rebbe, who his father hired for him, was uh, was um, was a Chabad Chassid, and they learned Tanya. So he was exposed to Tanya before he was exposed to Gemara. And that's because Rav Solveitchik grew up in Cheslevich when his father was the rabbi there. Cheslevich was an interesting town, and and uh, the, the fact that they hired Rav Moshe Solveitchik is also uh, the stuff of legend. I mean, it's a Hasidish town. Why would they hire a 
misnagdik rabbi, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik's son. As it happened, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik had a great relationship with the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. Both of them were very, very conservative in opposing a, all the um, modern innovations into Jewish society in the Russian Empire. So they did work well together, but there's also, uh, this goes back in, uh, further back in history to the Napoleonic era, but that's the stuff of legend, which I discussed on another episode. In any event, after World War I, there's the communist takeover, the Bolshevik Revolution, and he is forced to leave Cheslevich. Um, there's a destruction of Jewish life, of Yevsektsia, the Jewish communists, uh, repress Jewish life in the early 20s. And shortly uh, after that happens, he moves back, he crosses the border back into Poland, leaves communist Russia behind. He actually, during that time, in 1918, he missed his father's Levaya. He did not know that Reb Chaim Brisker had died until someone came from Minsk and told him about his father's passing, which he felt terrible about, that he didn't... Uh, didn't wasn't able to be by his father's levaya. It really broke him. He had been very close with his father. It was, it was his father was uh, you know very you know Rebbeim Brisker to the whole world, but to him he was uh, he was his father. That same year, Petra Solovechik Feinstein, her mother died, her rebellious prisoner's wife. So it was a bit of a tragic year for the family. And then a couple of years later, they had to leave Cheslevich because of the communist uh, destruction of Jewish life. So he's kind of at a crossroads. But at the time, his grandfather, Rafal Shapiro, who is still alive, he offers him a position in the newly, or planned on newly reopening Valozhin Yeshiva. Rafal Shapiro, after Valozhin had closed the second time because of World War I, so Rafal Shapiro, who lived a very long life, was still around. He wanted to reopen Valozhin, this time in independent Poland. So he was going to give his grandson, or Moshe Soloveitchik, or Chaim's son, a position in the yeshiva. Uh, that didn't work out. There was all kinds of family politics. Rafal Shapiro himself died shortly after in Minsk before he got to open, reopen Volozhin. And, um, and he wasn't able to get the position in the Volozhin yeshiva. So now he's still looking for a position. And something came up, which was an interesting proposition, in Warsaw, capital of newly independent Poland, center of Jewish life, the center, the Jewish capital of the world, and there's a rabbinical school called Tach Kemoyni, which was affiliated with the Mizrahi, and it was headed by the secular historian, Professor Meir Balaban, who was a very prestigious historian. There's a lot to say about him and his trailblazing research into Polish-Jewish history, and he wrote an enormous amount on Krakow and Lvov on the Frankist movement and a, a tremendous scholar, but he was secular and he's the one running Tach Kamaini. And it's obviously the rabbinical seminaries is secular studies together with rabbinical studies. But he's, he's given the position to give shiurim to the, to the rabbinical students. And he says, I'm hired to teach Torah. So I'm teaching Torah. What does it make a difference? What uh, what other thing is going on there? I am someone who my purpose in life is to teach Torah, and this is what I'm doing. Now, but if, and and he stuck to those ideals. Uh, a few years later, uh, things flared up when he didn't want to give smicha to the graduates, and Balaban insists that Rabbi Shalavaji gives them smicha. So he said, "What is this? A joke? 
I'm not signing off on smicha unless the guy passes a test in Yeriday, he knows his and he's and he knows he could be a competent rabbi. And Balaban says, what do you mean? These guys graduated, they went through the four-year curriculum, they have credits, they accumulated the courses that they need to take, you write them the smicha, we guarantee that upon graduation they get smicha. And he says, that's ridiculous, that's a sham, I'm not doing that. And he resigned, he was forced to resign, and um, he wouldn't he wouldn't do something that didn't uh, didn't fit with his uh, with his value system, and he left. And now again, he's out of a position. So here comes in another side of the story. One of his close friends in life was his father's one of his father's closest students, perhaps his most his closest Talmud Rabarch Ber, the Rashiva in Kamenitz, and he remained a lifelong friend through thick and thin, to Ramesha Salavechik. There's a couple of interesting anecdotes. Rebach Ber, when, the, when his yeshiva after World War I was still in Vilna, they were in Vilna for about five years before they moved um, to Kamenitz. They had been during World War I in, in Kremenchunk, in first in Minsk, then in Kremenchunk in the Ukraine. And then at the end, of, after World War I, they moved back to Poland. They were in Vilna for five, six years, and then only then they moved out to Kamenitz. They were in Kamenitz for only about 13, 14 years, until today we call the yeshiva Kamenitz, right? Before, the, before World War I, they were in Slabatka. They were the other yeshiva in Slabatka, so they made a few stops along the way. But at this point, they're in Vilna, and he invites um, Ramesha Salavechik to give a shir in his yeshiva. And and some bachrim in the yeshiva made a protest. They, were, they said, he teaches in Tachkamayni, it's affiliated with the Mizrahi, they have secular studies, we can't have him, we're going to boycott the shir. And Rebarch Ber heard about it and he said, what? You're going to boycott the shir? You better be by the shir and give him the proper respect. And Rebarch Ber himself came to the shir um, another time because of uh, another issue that Ramesh Salavechik had with the establishment in Nagodis Yisrael, with the Mayatzis Gedele Atayra, which we'll try to get to if we have time. A whole saga, a whole, uh, you know, a whole dispute rather. Um, that he had with the Agudas Yisrael and the Mayetzis Gedele HaTayra. It's also in the early 1920s. So there was a movement, or so so the story goes, that there was a movement to put Ramesh Salavechik in Cherem. And Rebarch Ber stopped them and he said, you can't put the Rebbe's son in Cherem, the Rebbe being Reb Chaim Brisker, and how could you put the Rebbe's child in Cherem? He stuck up for him. And the third time he sticks, sticks up for him, is that Rabbah Ber was in America collecting money for his yeshiva. And Rav Revel from Rabbi Yitzchak asked Rabbah Ber to give a shear in the yeshiva. And Rabbah Ber gave a shear. And it was at that time, around that time, that the Matrit to Ilui had passed away and the position of Rosh Yeshiva was vacant in Rabbi Yitzchak Khan. And Rabbah Ber recommended Rabbi Salavechik for the position. And that's how he was able, one of the reasons he was able to get the position in Rabbi Yitzchak Khan was on Rabbah Ber's recommendation. So this is someone who stayed with him, which is also interesting to note is that Rabbah Ber never took an active part in Agudis Yisrael. He was never on the Mayatzis Gedele HaToyra, never, to the best of my knowledge, attended any of the Knesset Gedeles, to the best of my knowledge, and didn't take part, an active part in the Aguda. So there's another interesting uh, parallel. Now the years that, the decade almost, uh, that uh, Ramesh Zalavechik was in, was in, um, Warsaw were stormy years. Uh, there's a fascinating article in, in the Hakira uh, 
journal that I read recently, amazing stories, a whole bunch, a series of, of one dispute after another. He kept on getting himself into different uh, disputes, um, first with the Agudis Yisrael. He was at a, Ramesh Salvechuk was at a Mizrahi conference, and he spoke about the Moyetzis Gedele Yatar and the Agudis Yisrael, about how a political party, how do they have a right to... Uh, to make a super leadership for the entire, representing the entire Jewish people when they're only representing a specific political agenda. And this led him into a direct dispute with the Aguda and then later with Reb Chaim Meiser himself. And it ended up being in the newspapers. So they're writing uh, open letters to each other in the newspapers. And basically the dispute is, what did his father, Reb Chaim Brisker, Hold about the Aguda because he attended the 1912 Katowice founding conference of the Aguda, but he had made his participation conditionary upon 18 points. I guess he was, I guess uh, Woodrow Wilson, a few years later at the end of World War I, when he presented his 14 points at the Treaty of Versailles, he was inspired by Reb Chaim Brisker, who in 1912 in Katowice had presented the 18 points. And, um, and then the question was, did they fulfill the 18 points of Reb Chaim Risker? Did they not? Did Reb Chaim Risker in the end withdraw his support from the Aguda? And that's what's going on. And it becomes a big dispute. He's later involved in a dispute with the Aguda Sarabonim of Poland, mainly Hasidish Rabbanim, about the, rab- the rabbinate in the city of Radom, and then later the Shechita and Tamashov. And he gets into a, again, a open letter, uh, uh, dispute, in the newspapers, in the Jewish press at the time, the Yiddish press, with the Kli Chemda, Ramer Don Platsky, and, um, and that becomes a very hard time for him. And therefore, when he got the position uh, offered in Rabbi Yitzchak he jumped on it, and he went to America as soon as the American embassy allowed him to go. They didn't let him go right away. He had an ingrown toenail, and the American embassy in Warsaw was not excited about that, and it took him a year Till he got his visa and was able to get in, he in America he finally got the um, the respect and the acceptance um, that he uh, that he did not have in uh, uh, in Warsaw, and he was successful there. He made a huge imprint on Rabbi Yitzchak as a premier Torah institution. A lot of Talmidim, his smicha that he gave. Um, I remember when I was in the Mir Yeshiva. Uh, as a Bacher, he spoke how Rabbi Lander, uh, Rabbi Lander Sr., Rabbi Bernard, uh, Rabbi, I forgot his first name, Lander w- had passed away. They said he might be the last one in the world to have smicha from Rabbi Shasalavechik in, uh, in Rabbi Nezik Al-Khanan. So, so the, the, um, interesting, one of the interesting stories about his time in America is that he had been somewhat affiliated with the Mizrahi. He insisted his entire life that he's not a political person. He does not get involved in politics. He, he said that that was the way of his father, not to be political, not to get involved in politics. He's a teacher of Torah, which is interesting because his younger brother, the Briskarov, did the same thing in, a, in his way, obviously in a different way. He also did not want to get directly involved in politics. And as much involvement as the Briskarov had with the Agudas Yisrael, he never officially joined the Aguda. Uh, and he never was officially on the Mayatzis Gedalia Torah. So, but Ramesha Salavechik, even when he was affiliated with the Mizrahi in Poland, he always limited his involvement, and he said that he's not a political man, 
and he's not so involved. As it happens, before he even left Warsaw, he already started moving away from the Mizrahi. There's a letter from Yitzchak Nissenbaum, also a big Valazhaner Talmud, who was one of the great uh, leaders of the Mizrahi, one of the great Rabbanim in Warsaw, one of the big Adalim in Poland before the war, and he was killed in Treblinka uh, uh, by the Nazis. So there's a letter that he says that Ramesha Soloveitchik has distanced himself from the Mizrahi, and incredibly enough, in his last year of his life, Ramesha Soloveitchik in America, the newly found Agudas Yisrael, he officially joins the Mayatzis Gedele HaTayra, the, the founding, he's one of the founding members of the Mayatzis, and he becomes part of the Aguda, and he dies a few months later, and amazingly enough, his son, Rav Salvechik, joins the Aguda and the Mayatzis Gedele HaTayra, and he was actually active in the Mayatzis during its formative years, before he himself left the Aguda a couple of years later, and, um, and, um, and that's, that's also a story. So the the a uh, little bit about Ramesha Salavechik, a little bit also about his wife, Pesha, she outlived him, and uh, she lived way into the 1960s, very uh, dominant woman. She's, she was the in, the in the house with the education of the kids. She's the one who uh, insisted that it's important that they get, in today's day and age, a broader education and sent them to Berlin, uh, both sons of hers, to... Um, Later, the third one also to to college and to get the the well rounded education, and she was a um, an, an impressive lady in her own right. The interesting thing is is that Gimel Shvat, that Ramesha Soloveitchik died in 1941, was we don't know the exact day that uh, Valazhin was closed. It was either Gimel Dalit or Hey Shvat. It was sometime during the week of Parshas Bay. His letter of the Nitziv that he writes about the closing and he signs it off as the week of Parsha's Bay, but it's pretty much 49 years to the day that Valazhin was closed. That's when Ramesha Soloveitchik, who was part of Valazhin, who was uh, his father of Chaim Brisker, the Rashivan Valazhin, who's someone who almost became the Rashivan Valazhin, and uh, someone who represented that world, his yard site was almost 49 years to the day. Uh, so that's uh, also an interesting uh, angle on that. So this is Yehuda Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.